Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Rich Kirk. Shoreham boy, Blades fan and one of the sharpest strategic minds in media, Rich is currently Chief Strategy Officer at Zenith UK. Named the UK's second best media planner in 2021 by campaign, Rich, like Avis, tries harder. Contributing to Zenith, winning work from Lloyd's, Halifax, U-Switch, Confused, Zoopla and Nestle last year. Rich says the upheaval of the pandemic made us revisit the base assumptions we'd held for years. Where can reach be built most effectively? How do we cope with volatile pricing? What are people doing with their day? As we emerge from COVID, let's remember that addressing those basic fundamental challenges remains vital to campaign success, even if they're tougher to answer. Welcome to the show, Rich. Hi, Giles. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Good stuff. Like seven quickfire questions, Mac or PC? Um, uh, PC. Sheffield or Shoreham? Uh, well, Shoreham. That's my church, shall I say. <laughs> okay. Creative or media? Media, all day. Billy Sharp or Byron Sharp? Uh, uh, sorry, Byron, but no one beats uh, King Billy. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Disney Plus or Netflix? Oh, uh, I've actually been my Netflix subscription off, so Disney Plus probably. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll talk about that in a bit. Well, this is a long one. See Sheffield United promoted to the Premier League or win campaign's number one media planner of the year? Uh, well, I've seen Sheffield United promoted to the Premier League twice in my lifetime. And I'd probably, uh, I would still go for it for a third time because I don't think... Uh, I don't think anything to do with media planning would ever make me cry, whereas Sheffield United can do it on an almost regular basis. <laughs> I don't doubt. I don't doubt that one bit. Uh, last one, famous Kirks. We've got Star Trek's James Kirk or Kirk Douglas. Oh, well, to be fair to you, Giles, uh, very few people do the Kirk Douglas one. It's always Captain. So yeah, I'll go with uh, Kirk Douglas. Cool. We sailed through those, Rich. Well, thank, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. It's, uh, thank you for the very nice instruction. It's lovely to be here. So we, we always start the show by celebrating the linear and more often than not, not so linear routes that guests have taken so far in their career. So could you kick off the show by telling us what was your first ever job and then how that led to your first, what you would regard as being your first proper job? So I know you studied history at university. So how did that then lead you to advertising? So my first ever job was, I was about 14 and I, or earlier than that maybe, I don't know, but... I worked in, uh, there was a butcher's at the end of our road and I worked in there after school, sort of like helping clean up, uh, mopping floors, sweeping floors, that sort of thing. That was my first ever job. Uh, but my first proper job after uni was um, I went to work um, as a sort of jack of all trades for a company in the uh, cycling industry that sold cycling clothing and accessories uh, and on my first day I had to build 
the desk that I was going to work at, a flat pack desk, and I had to build it. That was the first thing I had to do when I turned up there. Whilst I was there, they, um, the owner of the business received, like uh, in the post, like a 150 quid free Google AdWords voucher. And we just built a website that had the capacity to sell online at the time. Uh, and he sort of like chucked the voucher at me and said, well, try and get some value out of this. But that's where I sort of uh, started to get interested in it, really, because there was a um, sort of discussion about what we would spend it on, how it might work out if it actually done anything, all the kind of questions that I still deal with today, basically, but um, were happening right there in a tiny office on a re- uh, industrial park in Bolsover um, in, in Derbyshire. So, um, yeah, that was my first uh, first job. And and um, do, you, do you remember just set it going through and, and, and working out the mechanics of AdWords and how that would work? And do you remember if it, if it was successful? Yeah, so um, it, I mean, up until that point, my job had been sort of like unloading stuff off containers that were coming into the park and uh, and just helping out generally with anything that needed doing, helping test or sort of chuck ideas around for products and stuff like that. Doing a bit of everything it was a fantastic job to have actually. But yeah, when we got the when we started working on AdWords, we were it just really interested me the idea that you know you could um, you could use all this technology to track and um, understand where sales were coming from and sort of which products were going to sell more easily or which products needed a real push, which products would deliver the highest amount of profit, all that sort of stuff suddenly became like really real and interesting um, and kind of controllable in a way, rather than it just being a discussion happening somewhere. So um, uh, I suppose that sort of triggered something in me and I, um, I ended up spending quite a long time doing search marketing as a result. And, and was this, um, this post degree then you were doing this yes well i worked um i worked for the same company uh in the holidays um when i was at uh university and then i i went and worked for them after i finished the university as well there was a owned a company owned by someone that uh uh like a sort of friend of the family from way back and i was lucky enough to sort of uh be taken under their wing it was uh yeah and uh, and, and introduced to um all sorts of things. It was a fantastic experience. I love that that story was like your trigger to be. Is that, was that the first time you'd ever kind of been exposed to that side of media and advertising? Or was it something that like, previously you'd been interested in at university? Or I'd, I'd always been interested in, I think I'd always been interested in like how stuff got sold and what, what made businesses tick in terms of like, in terms of being a success or, or not. And um, I suppose my only other sort of thoughts about advertising before that, though, had been about, I suppose, what you'd call creative, whereas that was the sort of first thing that sort of triggered me onto like, oh, there's, there's actually a lot of levers away from what you say that make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, no, of course there are. And and did you continue to, to use those levers after you'd had this voucher? Did you start as a, as a business? Did they start investing in, in, in AdWords? Well? Yeah, there was, um, there was a yeah, fair bit went into it. Um, and then uh, the thing that really sort of in, I suppose, it was a small business uh, in the grand scheme of, of, of things, particularly in the grand scheme of like the clients I work on now. Um, and um, and so we're always looking for the most cost-effective route to grow sales. And, and in, in sort of researching about AdWords, that sort of uh, put me onto the whole world of search engine optimization, which was basically AdWords, but you don't have to pay for it. And, uh, and that was where I spent a lot of my time as a result because we suddenly, well, if we, there's no point in us uh, spending all this money on AdWords if we haven't even, you know, done the first bit of um, of making sure that we're visible uh, when people are, are sort of typing stuff in. And this was, 
back early part of the century. So um, it was a, a time where like SEO was a real cottage industry, sort of very, very small niche thing. Uh, and I suppose right time, right place, really, because I think um, it's fair to say that I got a fair amount of mileage out of my very small amount of SEO knowledge. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I remember those days well. I, I really do. And actually, I think um, I remember talking to John Lyons about this, in fact, it, it was there was almost like the, the race to gain knowledge and understanding of how to use certain digital ad levers to to keep with the word that you've used there which I think works perfectly and and and, and the spoils that you would enjoy from being so quick to have an SEO play or understand Google AdWords and how search was working were probably as significant as they ever have been since yeah yeah it was i mean the same thing is happening right now with um commerce like this whole retail media commerce explosion i mean as far as i can make out commerce advertising is basically just seo and ppc but on retailer websites instead of on your own website that's i mean uh, so and it's kind of happening again you can see um you know I, I work in a really big advertising holding company and you can see people particularly sort of younger people who've who've who really studied the sector getting massive opportunity as a result of it and sort of uh you know uh, more power to them for doing that and spotting that it was a big a big trend but um it, it's basically the same mechanics as far as i can make out anyway although that might be showing my ignorance <laughs> i doubt it i mean you do find that the fundamentals just kind of get rebranded or different terminology comes in and when you look under the bonnet it's actually not that different but maybe a variable or two as tweets uh, but that's that's really interesting did you, did you then, I know I keep going back to this story, but I'm finding it really interesting. Once you'd had this experience and you were exploring uh, SEO more and Google AdWords and, and, and no doubt other advertising opportunities, did you then move, I suppose, closer to the industry that you you exist in now? Or did you move into advertising industry? Oh, no, it's all sort of happened by accident, really. Um, moved down to London uh, and then there was, yeah, sort of, moved around a little bit tried to stay in the cycling industry but um didn't work out um and then did all sorts of job working a car dealership for a bit um and ended up working at a small um advertising agency called chameleon net who are now wpnc um for vicky reeves who was a fantastic boss to have at the time and worked with a guy called um drew davis who sort of uh helped me learn lots and lots more about uh, doing PPC and SEO at slightly bigger scale for clients and learn about, you know, media, ag- well, agency life, they were a design and build and marketing agency. So they weren't either sat in the, they weren't squarely in either the creative or the media camp. And then I ended up, um, eventually ended up at um, Performix, which had just been bought out by, uh, bought out from uh, the sort of double click Google business by publicists and they just set it up as a um, a subsidiary of zenith and i went there to do seo um and the person i was working for kind of left after a couple of weeks uh but i must have driven them out within two weeks and then um from there we sort of uh, it was just right like i say it was, it, that was like late 2009 and it was like right place right time um and there was huge amount of demand from these like large clients that Zenith had like huge clients, way bigger than anything I'd ever worked on before, but loads of demand because suddenly SEO had gone kind of a little bit mainstream, but a lot of clients recognized that it had to be done 
alongside all the rest of the media plan. And so they were coming to agencies like Zenith, and I'm sure the same thing was happening across all the big holding companies and saying, well, what's your expertise like here? And because it's an opportunity for us to kind of grow without having to pay media owners loads of money. And yeah, it was just happily, I was able to, I was sort of just basically in at the ground floor and right place, right time. I was able to ride that wave a little bit um, for a few years. It was, um, we had a re- quite a lot of success. It was, it was a really interesting time. Yeah. And, and when SEO did then go mainstream, did you see much else changing at the time? Because we'll come on to it. Well, we can come on to it now, in fact, about how, how much change there is in the media market. And I suppose context dictates everything, but it is quite a, a volatile market. The thing that I'm saying a lot at the moment to clients and uh, potential hirees and, and stuff is um, there's never been a more exciting time to be a media planner coming out of uh, the shakeup that we had with COVID, I know that it's not fashionable to say COVID changed things. It's actually, it's probably fashionable to say, you know, no one really changed. Um, but if you just look at the, the, the pricing and the way that media is used in the UK, it's undeniable to say that COVID has had a really huge impact on, um, uh, has had a really huge impact on on that scene and really shaken things up and has disrupted kind of long-term patterns. And so, um, you know, TV pricing has been up and down in the last sort of two years, more than it has been for a very long time. And that's massive for clients that spend millions and millions of pounds in that, in that environment, um, because it has huge impacts on what they can expect their campaigns to deliver and therefore what they can take back to the business at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, in radio, our like radio listening habits have been, you know, that have been steady for 50 years have kind of got thrown up in the air and, and reordered a little bit. There's, so there's real interesting questions to be answered by media planners. It's an incredible time. Um, and this is before you even get into the whole fragmentation and how all the big kind of monolithic channels that have always been on the plan are now really starting to fragment into, into loads of new uh different possibilities and different formats and different uh media owners so it's it it's it's so exciting being a media planner at the moment um it's it, because there is so much constant change happening and it's i think a lot of marketers perhaps don't realize just how much change is going on in the media space um, because quite rightly when it comes to um when, when talking about your creative and your messaging and your strategy for, for that side of advertising, you probably do want to be focused on the unchanging man and, and the unchanging woman and their, um, and their motivations and how they are probably the same as, as they ever have been at a base level. Um, so it's kind of this story that in advertising, there is one side which is really, really changing rapidly and one side that is, uh, that is probably quite slow moving. It feels like you have aside i think but actually it's okay to say well there's you know different parts of advertising probably moving at very different speeds and that's the opportunity i think for for media planners and and uh, and people working on the creative planning side to come together and acknowledge that and then produce brilliant campaigns off the back of it yeah i think um i think that's really well explained actually because I, I know you and i have spoken a few times at least on the twitters about i mean i've quoted i'm sure i've quoted burn back at you it tends to be my lazy panicked uh, unchanging man let's go to that comment because I, I, I do believe there's so much truth in that that's often ignored and at the same time what i what i liked about your explanation just now whilst you then came on to talking about the fragmentation that your primary point to me it seemed was actually about things outside of media 
COVID and, and, and the pandemic and how that has changed media consumption and behaviours. And that's what's so important. Yeah, there's, I mean, COVID's one one thing, because uh, the way that we look at, so TV is the most important medium and TV tends to be spoken about in terms of year-on-year pricing changes. Um, and obviously COVID sent prices really, really low and then obviously prices rebounded and so the, the year-on-year changes were massive and advertisers weren't used to trying to factor that into their to their planning. And so that made it very interesting. But there's also a big underlying shift over several years now that people are um, moving away from spending time in these big monolithic channels. And you can't, you just simply can't reach as many people at once in, in places that you used to be able to reach loads and loads of people. Like if you look at a graph, which is the number of shows that have delivered 15 million or more viewers in one go in Britain since the turn of the century. You know, it's a regression line that's just going down very quickly, basically. Aside from recently, there was a little blip, but most of those shows were Boris announcing that we're all going to have to live in our houses for three months um, or a couple of the big football games that we've enjoyed as England have booked the trend of being historically shit. Um, at football <laughs> with the caveat of having a very easy draw yeah yeah but aside from those things like there is just you know people aren't gathering together in those huge numbers anymore there and, and so they're moving out across the landscape so so the long-term uh, trend of kind of fragmentation plus the upheaval of uh, of covid uh and then the kind of weird thing that we've had uh, for years now, you know, low interest rates, um, encouraging VCs to pour money into into companies that are then spending that money aggressively on advertising. All of those things kind of coming together to create a really volatile media market since over the last couple of years, particularly in um, in television. And obviously, that has huge knock on effects on all the other channels that big brands use. So it, yeah, it has been a fantastically exciting and interesting time to be a media buyer. It continues to be. Um, uh, and and trying to find some advantage in that for the people that we work with is it, there's never been more opportunity to do that than there is currently. Um, excuse the perhaps clumsy and and probably quite absurd question. I don't mean to suggest for one second that anything healthy has happened as a direct consequence of of the pandemic. But speaking about the industry and media specifically, and and how that affected uh, the industry. Do you see that as a good thing, like an almost massive shake-up of how people were consuming media? Like, is that is that good for the industry? Obviously, there's no denying that COVID was a pretty horrendous time, not just obviously for the obvious effects of COVID, but also, you know, the uncertainty that everybody had to live with in terms of, you know, is are our biggest clients going to cut their budget in half tomorrow? Are they going to completely go off air? And then what will happen to us? Because obviously an agency is nothing without their clients. That was no fun at all, and I have no desire to ever return to those times. But um, the in, if, yeah, if, if you were to say take all that away, has it had an interesting impact on media planning as a as a discipline? I would say yeah, it definitely has. You know, I think before we got to early twenty twenty, for a long time, there had been some interesting kind of long term shifts in terms of audiences fragmenting um, more digital media coming in, but they were generally sort of very set in long-term trends, you know, fairly easily, easily predictable. And I think that media planning in many ways before the pandemic, there was a lot of focus on 
you know, what can we do that's innovative and flashy? Because uh, just trying to eke out a bit more advantage each year in a in a marketplace that was largely quite predictable wasn't um, wasn't particularly glamorous. And so that I think to to sort of jazz it up, you had um, a lot of uh, focus on things like media firsts and partnerships with the with the with the right uh, most fashionable media owners and stuff like that. Whereas now. Um, that stuff has all suddenly become secondary again, and actually, it's all about like just answering how we're going to reach the hardest to reach people in our target audience in a way that's actually going to be impactful. Like, can we quantify that impact instead of just talking about the number of people we might be able to reach? And you know, there's really big fundamental questions now as as fragmentation continues about well, we think we're reaching this many people, but actually, how many people we're we reaching in a way where we could realistically expect to form some sort of behavioural or, or perception change as a result of the communication we're delivering to them. And so, yeah, it really is um, a time where we don't have to, you know, there's there really doesn't need to be a huge amount of focus on all the kind of fluff that goes around media. It's, it's you know, there's so much to talk about on the, on the very basics of what we do, um, but it's all being looked at anew, or at least I think the best, you know, the best planners that and the best plans that I see and the best awards case studies that I read in, in media awards and stuff, they're all looking at the basic questions and afresh and anew um, and finding really interesting solutions to problems that uh, age old problems, basically. Yeah, I think, um, again, I completely agree. And I think there's almost a contradiction at the heart of the unchanging man and how people talk about it. Because I think I think you and I are on the same page in as much as man's wants, desires, motivations, those things tend to be quite constant. And yet you can't necessarily apply that as a sweeping statement across everything and not recognise the fact that the way the media market is fragmented and what it looks like, whether it's in response to the pandemic and how people are engaging with media or not, that is changing. So to not recognise change exists, albeit with a species of unchanging men slash women, makes zero sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if it has to be controversial, I would be, if I was a marketer, I'd be like, well, you know, what's my brand platform? Does it speak to those desires well? We tested it, we we made sure that we feel like we're onto something here that works. If so, yes, right, set that for five years. Where am I going to eke out the opportunity to to really make that platform work as hard as it possibly can over the next five years? It would be laser focusing on on the media, uh, really, because I think that, uh, uh, you know, I agree completely with you that you know, the whole thing about people's motivations not changing, I'm, I'm totally bought into that. Uh, on the And as a result, you know, like we always talk about it's more important to wear a campaign in than it is to worry about wear out, um, which, you know, is, is there's a vanishingly small possibility that that is going to affect your campaign. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well said. Has it, uh, I was going to jump onto another question, actually, but I'm going, to, I'm going to stick with this just briefly. Has there been, have you seen a change in perception of what's realistic from, in terms of the results you can get from ad spend and media spend? Because obviously there's been a weird kind of inflation of sorts with certain types of media as people have, say, you know, tried to complete Netflix because they've been stuck at home if they're fortunate enough to have Netflix, etc. Has that has that kind of set a different level of what people expect from from budgets? I don't want you to offend any clients, by the way, but I mean, like broadly speaking. No, no. I think certainly over the last nine months, a big thing that we've been having to talk to clients who spend a lot of money in in broadcast media is, you know, you are you, your your same budget is unfortunately going to buy you less at this time, um, and we need to work hard to try and 
and make sure that your money is buying you the same or potentially even more than um, than uh, than it was previously. And some of the best work that we've done as an agency around uh, looking at truly effective reach as opposed to simply reach has been born out of that challenge that the, the, the price volatility has thrown down to us. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of that work because I think it's, it's genuinely pushing, pushing media planning forward and, um, and, and our clients uh, are very happy with it. Yeah. So aside from that, it's, uh, yeah, the, the long-term trends of people moving away from the places that they have been previously poses like really big, uh, questions that, that haven't just, they don't, you know, they won't go away after this year and we get into a, and we look at next year, they're, they're going to be there long-term and they're, you know, there's something that challenges the kind of way that a lot of advertisers are set up and the structures that they're set up with, because they're not, you know, their, um, you know, whole media buying sort of structures and departments that, uh, in advertisers are, are built around the idea that it's a fairly monolithic set of publishers that you're used to dealing with and that probably isn't going to be true going forward and so it's you know that's a really interesting structural challenge that we have to have to face into but then once you've planned the media uh, you talked about then about how you can quantify effective reach how, how can you do that is that is that harder than it was when you started and you were thrown a, a google adwords voucher by your boss at the time and it seems to be quite a controversial topic doesn't it just talking about attention metrics yeah so um attention's been a really big eye-opener for the media industry i think you know the the guys at amplified intelligence led by um, karen nelson field they deserve huge pat on the back for opening people's eyes to the weaknesses of um just measuring viewability um and getting people to think about you know there's a vast vast difference between uh one impression in one channel and another impression in another channel um and and the challenge that we're facing into with the work that we do is you know we all know that reach isn't you know each point of reach isn't born equal so how do you numerically quantify those differences and what are the things about media that you can you can bring together to give clients an estimate of what they're like kind of the real effective reaches in their plan versus the normal reach and we've been um and then how can you validate that that number that you're providing to them is actually worth a damn and something that they should pay attention to rather than just being some meaningless piece of theory uh that's the work that that we're focused on we're really interested in because ultimately you know if, if you want to buy if you want to sort of reach 70 percent of the uk most weeks there's going to be more and more and more and more ways to do that um and you have to find a way to choose between those plans to find the best one uh, and if you're only ever looking at it in terms of reach and frequency a they'll all all those options will look as pretty much as good as one another and then b you know instinctively that within it the uh some of that reach is not worth as much as as other bits of that plan and so if you're left having a kind of subjective discussion about that with clients, then uh, then you're in a you're in a in a bad place because you probably won't make a lot of decisions quickly. And one thing that um, we've seen in the last couple of years is that the clients that are willing to get on and make decisions quickly based on good evidence are the ones who tend to do best out of out of the current environment. Yeah, and it's it's a complex one. And I'm pleased you gave a nod to um, Professor Karen Nelson Field there too because we spoke to her recently and, and um, 
it, it, she, she's absolutely wonderful and the work they're doing is really really interesting and important but do you, do you think the question is less how do we numerically quantify attention and more how can we better numerically quantify it than we do now because I almost feel like it's it, it, there's so much context that goes into uh, how how advertising and media is consumed that we almost need to accept that it's not necessarily we're not claiming it's going to be 100% accurate because it simply can't be but it can definitely be a lot better than it currently is yeah so I think that I think you're exactly right so the work that's been done around attention moves us on massively from an imperfect system whereby you were buying impressions and then there was an attempt to understand which of those were viewable and which weren't. And we had all the stuff sort of three or four or five years ago about definitions of viewability. It moves us on from that because, uh, you know, the, the research shows that attention is a much better leading indicator of actual results than impressions or viewable impressions are. The danger that um, the danger in making it a panacea and putting it on a pedestal and saying, well, this solves everything. I think is that there's much more to it than just the amount of attention that a format can generate. You know, the work of of, of people like Amplified Intelligence, Lumen, its value is in saying that, you know, there's, relatively speaking, channel X can deliver more attention for the, for the money that you're looking to buy than channel Y. That's how a lot of people are using that data at the moment. But if you think about it, there's a lot more going on you know, if it, so let's say that the, the data says that, um, for instance, YouTube non-skippable advertising is worth investing more money in than, than, you, than you currently are. That's a good recommendation, but YouTube's a big fucking place and lots of on YouTube. So what, you know, what's, you know, how do you work out what's worth advertising against on YouTube? Because for instance, one thing that we've known for more than a decade, 15 years, is in TV is that if you take an ad um, and put it in a show where people are highly invested in the show, very likely to watch all the way through to the end, a metric that Barb calls persistence, if you put that an ad in that show, it will generally perform better at driving recall than if it goes into a show which has low persistence that people aren't massively fussed about. Um, and so generally speaking, the attention data that's available in the market at the moment would sort of tell you that a 30 second TV ad is, you know, will deliver about X of attention, but is that advert against some, is that, is that 30 seconds in a really great show or 30 seconds in a really crap show? Is it 30 seconds in a show that is kind of on the same lines thematically as what I'm trying to sell? Cause we know that relevance also plays a big role, um, in driving purchase, you know, is it being watched by the kinds of people that I'm interested in speaking to or not, is it, and, and that affects, all of those things will affect whether it's, you know, going to be an effective place to put the ad, not just the amount of attention that a 30 second TV ad or a, a 20 second YouTube ad or whatever can deliver. So you know, I think that the attention data brings us on massively, but if, if you're a sub media planner saying, well, you know, that's the answer, then I'll just use that to, to do all my planning. I think you're missing out on a whole load of other things that clearly impact the performance of campaigns that aren't necessarily captured in that data set. So it's about, there's still a, a, the role for media planners is to acknowledge when brilliant data is produced, but then take that and try to combine it with something else to create some sort of unique form of, uh, some sort of unique insight on the media marketplace. So your client has got a unique view of the marketplace that no one else has, which then enables them to decide what media is actually worth to them 
um, because at the end of the day, all it's all about getting to a negotiation with a media owner for what you think their their inventory is worth. So uh, yeah, it's like with everything in the media world, the attention stuff is it's it's a brilliant insight and it has massively pushed forward thinking. But at some point, it will become commoditized and it will no longer have a huge amount of commercial advantage to to an individual client because everybody else will be using it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Spot on. I, I, I worry, certainly from my side, when it comes to the, I mean, that's exactly the sort of grown-up media conversations we need to be having and should all be having. But it's not necessarily the grown-ups that control the purse strings, that, that control the investment in media. And people will always choose certainty over risk. And, and my concern is that there are, there are so many people out there selling certainty which they, which they can't do. They can't sell certainty in terms of results from, from investments in advertising. And that's, that, I suppose that's part of the complex mix and the problem. Yeah, that's, I mean, risk is another thing that I love speaking to clients about that doesn't get spoken about enough. Because, so Zenith, um, the agency that I work for, is known as the ROI agency. And uh, ROI is, again, an unfashionable term nowadays. But part of ROI, part of the philosophy is that you present to a client not just an idea of the return they might get in in terms of their advertising spend, but also an idea of the risk associated with that forecast, which is often forgotten about. And one of my sort of gripes that I have uh, um, generally is that uh, a lot of our clients use um, econometrics, like uh, media mix modeling, to, to decide where they're going to spend their budget. Uh, and the results of that analysis are usually presented as a series of diminishing returns curve by channel. But we never, ever really get to see those returns curves presented with confidence bounds attached. So you just see a series of curves and and often it'll say, well, if we spend tons of money in digital, then uh, that's going to deliver a much better result than all the stuff that we've been doing historically. And, you know, if your agency is continuing to recommend that you go on television, then they're just dinosaurs, basically. But when you actually dig into the data and look at the confidence bounds on that, digital curve they're massive like absolutely huge whereas the confidence bounds on a tv curve which is informed by years upon years upon years of data are very very tight so whilst there might be potentially higher rewards for skewing the budget into new channels it does come at a severe level of risk and in the current economic environment that risk is not a word that a lot of people want to hear when you start talking about it so um, i feel like risk is absolutely something that media planners should be talking about more um, with clients because it's something that the people who sign off the advertising budget, uh, CFOs, finance directors, they want to have a conversation about risk uh, and they want it to be, like you say, a grown-up conversation. So, yeah, that's another area that I find really fascinating and, and you know, showing clients plans that have got an ROI forecast but then a risk-adjusted ROI forecast. We've built some good tools for performance marketing recently that allow you to optimize to either the maximum possible return or the lowest possible risk, uh, the, sorry, the optimal return with the lowest amount of risk. And clients, a lot of clients have never sort of been presented with that choice before, it leads to some really fascinating discussions about what they actually want to do. No, that sounds like a great prompt to have those discussions. Thanks, Rich. I, w- I want to move on to listener questions, but before I do, I want to ask you why the media planner in you, not the football fan in you, because that's uh, an easy answer, why the media planner in you is so excited for the World Cup this year? Yes, World Cup this year is, 
I've said this quite a lot of times now, it's got to be the biggest kind of set piece opportunity for advertising to show it's effective and can change businesses' fortunes of the century so far. You know, we have never had a tournament in sport this big happen right in the middle of the biggest shopping season of the year. You know, like the first big set of group, like the big, um, if you look at the first week of the tournament, the uh, the really, really big sort of star name games are all going to be on Black Friday that first week. Uh, and then Cyber Monday, the the, the, the following Monday, it, the tournament is slap bang in the middle of peak purchase season. And, the you know, it. I did some work with Matt Hill at Thinkbox. Um, but I, say, I say I did some work. I asked Matt Hill a question and he went and did it. Because that's how Matt operates. That's how Matt operates. But he was able to show that, you know, inside a tournament, he looked at the Euros 2021, um, inside a tournament like that, if you buy 300 ratings on TV, it will give you the national coverage that you would normally have to spend 800 to 900 ratings to get. Um, so TV, you know, the opportunity to deliver insanely cost-effective advertising campaigns during the World Cup this year is is definitely there. But, you know, audiences are going to be all over the place without wanting to sound incredibly uh, uh, sort of uh, sexist and old-fashioned, but most advertisers do want to speak to a female audience in the run-up to to Christmas because it's still true that in in many households across the, most households across the country they will be the chief decision maker when it comes to what gets bought for uh, in terms of gifting at Christmas. Um, but it's also true to say that um, sport, particularly matches that don't involve the home nations, does tend to skew very male, and so um, and it may actually play into the hands of of um, of broadcasters who aren't showing the football who can then capture a higher share of the female audience they actually might make uh they might be able to make hay in terms of being able to sell that audience to advertisers um because they'll it'll be more concentrated into their inventory so there's all sorts of really interesting questions we've never had a situation like this before obviously there's a lot of seasonal money that comes in in q4 normally you know brands that spend big at christmas but don't spend a lot the rest of the year plus you've got all the brands that want to be associated with tournaments and stuff. And it's just a very exciting time, basically, and a time where if you've got a really clear plan and you've got a really clear backing, you could deliver potentially some incredible numbers when it comes to advertising effectiveness. Yeah. Is it, would you say it's Super Bowl-esque or does it dwarf the Super Bowl even? Well, Super Bowl's one day, isn't it? And um, and uh, And it's one gigantic audience for one one evening this is going to be a series of huge moments uh, across a month um super bowl also doesn't take place you know um i i don't think super bowl's got the same kind of well it's certainly not got the same kind of pull in this country um i i would say that uh, you know I, I i can't see how the other thing well, sorry the other thing i was going to say super bowl is it's predictable like it's every year in the same time of year and stuff so it, i don't think it offers the same level of opportunity as this does which is just like kind of a an uh, an opportunity that's you know we've never you know no one's ever had the opportunity to plan for something like this before so it's it's a complete uh everyone's coming at it afresh there's never been anything like this in the uk before so it's that's why i'm excited about it yeah no it is exciting do you think we'll win rich oh the world cup 
Uh, I don't know. I think we've got a decent chance. I think if um, I think if I think a lot rests on some of our forward players staying injury free this this autumn. But yeah, I, I don't see why we haven't. Um, we shouldn't go into it with optimism as opposed to the usual uh, uh, the usual low expectations. Um, although I, I I can't see that we'll have an easy path to um, to glory. But you know, if England go deep into the into the tournament, that sort of second week of December, you're going to be seeing. You know, there's the opportunity there for advertisers to speak to north of 22, 23 million people in one go. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, should not be passed up lightly. It won't come with a, it will have a very high cost of entry, but the effectiveness that brands will be able to see off it, I would imagine, will be incredible. Boom! Sorry. It's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. But Gasp don't do podcast ads. And if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host at giles at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on strategy, research and brand positioning. But please don't do that. Let's get you back to the show. And it's probably the world's simplest idea. I call it the golden circle. Yeah, golden shower more like. You don't want Simon Sinek, you want a proper marketing chat, don't you? Hang on. I'd love to talk more about football, but I'm, I'm mindful of the time. So I'm going to go to listener questions now, Rich. Oh, that's better. Go for it. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, but we've got two for you, starting with good friend of the show, former guest and, and maker of waves, Andrew Spurrier-Dawes. He asks... What are the biggest barriers you see to clients taking on the best strategy? Well, the best strategy, I, th- I think, with the the biggest barriers, as with everything, is is just corporate inertia. Generally, I think that commercial finance people at client side probably they're being dragged in more and more directions all the time. It's not just advertising that's fragmenting huge parts of like client supply chains and, uh, and, you know, customer demands. They're all fragmenting massively. Clients are under more pressure than ever to produce a broader range of products for more, you know, more customer segments, et cetera, et cetera. I think those commercial finance people probably as a percentage of their time are able to spend less and less on signing off and approving the advertising spend, and and I think that trend that means that companies trend towards sort of when it gets to the sign off, sort of saying, well, you know, we always spend X on, uh, we always spend X amount of money on on Y activity, and now we're saying we're going to do something different. That feels very risky. So I think the the biggest problem is that that kind of inertia traps you into sort of, especially on some of the really really big clients, is there's an expectation the plan will always look broadly similar and. Um, one of the big things that I believe is that if you you know laws like the double jeopardy law things like that they all the forces in advertising like advertising gravity on brands basically wants brands to stay the same size and they want markets to stay the same shape um, they want brands to stay relatively similar to, uh, in terms of their size they want them to the status quo to be maintained over time so brands have to do something really bold if they want to shake up their position in uh, relative to their peers and uh, and yeah the 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 boldest strategy aims to try and do that but i think that um it's 
you're off, you're often asking clients to take on a lot and, and and push a lot to to the commercial and financial side of their organization so, so it comes back to risk again i suppose yeah it comes back to it's a brilliant brilliant media strategy really clearly cuts through the crap and explains why it is worth getting on board with what looks like a different and bold plan and it explains it from the point of view of those age-old questions it doesn't explain it from the point of view of well you know this is a super fashionable place to be appearing at the moment so we ought to be there or you know no one's ever done this so we should do it like it doesn't it doesn't explain it in those terms it explains it in terms of you know there's a really solid business case behind why it ought to be why that is the best path to growth um so yeah that's the i think that's the way that you uh I think that's what the best strategy does, um, and that's the that's the hurdle it overcomes. I've noticed, Rich. Actually, this is a compliment, by the way, that you've 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 nodded back to the commercials several times during this interview, which is actually really refreshing. I think too, it's too easy to forget about the commercials. And one thing you said right at the beginning when we were talking about that voucher was that you've always been interested in how businesses sold stuff. And <laughs> I think I think that's how you said it. Anyway, you might not have said stuff. Actually, I might have just made a note that way. But that's the key thing that I think is, is a consistent and that's really, um, it's really impressive to hear. I think, on the, you know, I, 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 that's definitely not something that's unique to, you know, or unique or special about me. I think that is something that you'd find speaking to anyone who's working in, in media at a big media agency because, um, uh, you know, media is, you know, a huge line item on the P&L for marketing departments after MarTech and staffing costs. It's usually right up there. And so, you know, I don't know, this might be unfair, but I feel like media is held to a really, really high bar when it comes to investment decisions, you know, talking about spending tens of millions of quid in some instances. And, and, and so we, I suspect um, that we have to have that interaction with commercial and financial people within advertisers. We have to help our clients have that interaction um, more often maybe than, than people on the creative side do where, Although, admittedly, when it comes to a creative vehicle, there's a lot more unknowable risk associated with with making change than there is with media. I think you rescued it at the end there from me taking offence. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, question, question two is from Liz. Liz says, uh, what is something that non-strategists don't understand about strategy? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really like the strategy part of my title because... I just think of myself as like someone who does media planning really, but I just, I seem to have uh, sort of become one of the people who like has some of the initial thought, the actual hard bit of the media planning. I don't have anything to do with it because uh, uh, I think my brain would explode if I did. Um, I think that, I mean, from the, because I sit and watch a lot of um, creative planners present work um, or, or people from the creative side present work. And I think something that people might not appreciate about that is, the level of bravery it takes uh, and the level of um so we all know that some of the most effective advertising is stuff that is really really hard you you know you would i mean i would i wouldn't be able to sleep for weeks knowing that i had to go in and try and sell a talking meerkat to a financial services firm or you know uh, you know sell a dancing dog to a, a bank or whatever um but those those things are provably really really effective, and 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 it's the strategist's job, sitting on the coast, to stand up and sort of in a really rational environment, in one incredibly rational environment, sell something that is totally irrational. Uh, and I think that 
the thing that perhaps isn't appreciated often is is there is like a real art to making that simple and making it compelling enough so that people who you know spend their entire day dealing in hard figures and and the demands of of um, in some instances very aggressive shareholders will buy into it as a vision i mean that is so yeah the thing that maybe something that people don't appreciate about strategy particularly you know on the creative side when i watch really good creative strategist work is like how brave you have to be to do to stand up and do that and do it with a with conviction yes yeah no, that's, that's a great answer and i think part of the reason why there's so much crap work about at the moment is because i think a lot of i think a lot of the time people fall back on a on a on something that is really rational and can be sold in easily when it comes to you know the number of ads that you see at the moment that are just someone reading a manifesto out it's you know, and that, that, you think, well, that probably was quite easy to sell into the board because it was hard to argue with it. So yeah, uh, bravery. Um, I always, always admire that in in the strategists that I work with. Yeah, you see a lot of compromises running on TV, don't you? Especially, well, sorry, not just TV. So the final part of the interview, then, Rich, is our four pertinent poses. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, don't just don't be such a dick, like. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm constantly looking back at interactions that I've had with people. And, how, how were you a dick then? Oh, just, uh, 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 far too self-confident. Um, be more humble would be my piece of advice to myself. Oh, and then um, also my other piece would be just give up on um, on the blades ever ever getting where you want them to be. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I saved myself a lot of uh, upset along the way. Yeah, the thing is, you say, I mean, it's the hope that kills us, isn't it, right? But you, it, I don't know, you're in a good place. You're in a good place in terms of the club itself and the support. I mean, very few have that level of sort of fanaticism. You know, keep hoping, keep hoping, Rich. Uh, number two is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Jargon, jargon, everyday jargon. I, I, I cannot stand it. Um, the way I just speak plain English, you know, our industry struggles enough for credibility without people talking in just word soup. They, uh, you know, the only reason people speak like that is to deceive and to uh, add complexity into situations where there doesn't need to be added complexity or because they just don't believe in what they're selling. So they, they make it sound complicated. It, it sounds more credible, but it does our industry irreparable harm to have, you know, really senior people putting out meaningless press releases and conference speeches um and uh you know i think um the whole purpose esg lobby has suffered from this there is a really really powerful thing to be said about brands that want to do something good for the world and i applaud it but it is wrapped up in so much nonsense speak that it, it doesn't do that cause any good so yeah if i could get rid of one thing it would be jargon um and uh yeah, I, I, I ask people if I'm ever, you know, if they ever catch me sort of talking, to just call me out on it instantly because it's the one thing that I, I really dislike about working in this industry. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Uh, number three, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, the, the, I struggle. So um, uh, I, I spent my entire life has been lurking and reading on stuff on Twitter. So I really should spend more time reading books. Uh, I, all the sort of ones that I would highly recommend um, 
I think probably your guests have recommended in the past. Uh, uh, one book that really inspired me to, to do what I do was um, reading Steve Harrison's biography of, of Gossage, um, which I, I love that book. One book that might not have been mentioned before, um, uh, it's not necessarily about advertising or marketing, well, not necessarily about advertising, but Terry Leahy, who ran Tesco, he wrote a book when he left Tesco called Management in 10 Words. Um, there's not many businesses in the UK who are run by a marketer who end up, you know, where the marketer ends up as the C, uh, EO and, and turns the whole business into a marketing led organization. I think Leahy at Tesco in its pomp did that. And his book management in 10 words is, is really interesting. He also was one of the first people to really get on board the, um, the kind of ESG cause, but he did it because he could see it was a route to greater profitability, not because he was like a, uh, someone who was massively emotionally affected by the climate crisis. So yeah, it, it, and there's a fanci- there's a fascinating chapter in that book from years and years ago that would probably feel very fresh today. Well, I'm pretty sure management in ten words has never come up, so that's great. No, that's good. I was a bit worried that you would have said like, yeah, everyone recommends that. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. But that, no, that's great. And and and, and Howard Gossard, huge fan. And I know Steve's done a done a, a movie, or I say a movie, a film, I should say about Gossage and I've been trying to hunt the link down so I might get in touch and see if we can link to that from the episode as well. The guy that the guy that invented social media advertising. He was yeah, he's, it's one of the, it's one of those names that should be more well known. I don't know whether there's some sort of there's a kind of romanticism to to his name because he's not so well known. Certainly one of the greats. Uh, number 4 then is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honor to our guest who has to give their reason why rich. So would you dedicate this episode oh that is a tough one uh well without being uh there's probably a bit of a cliche but i'll uh, i would say my wife Faye. i have i have a very very privileged life uh and most of it is down to the fact that Faye sort of keeps our entire existence going whilst i just focus entirely on media planning so uh without her i would be uh well I worry for my children's safety and uh, it would not be a happy life. Um, so, yeah, my wife, Faye, who enables me to um, do what I do. Um, so, yeah, if it wasn't for her, I would be in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of trouble. So, yeah, definitely dedicated to Faye. Yeah, well, this, this episode is very easily dedicated and very proudly dedicated to your wife, Faye. Fantastic. I was, I was slightly worried you were going to say Billy Sharp at the end of that. No, no, no. I, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Billy, uh, he, so he lives in the same part of Sheffield as me, and I sometimes uh, see him about. Um, I'm always very starstruck, even though he's just a dad at the school, like I am. But, um, yeah, no, uh, uh, if he fires us to Premier League uh, glory in his, what I suspect will probably be his last season next season, then if I'm ever invited back on, I suspect it would be uh, Billy next time. Uh, so then as a final call to action, we'll share links to, as I said, to Howard Gossage, management in 10 words, uh, to your social media profiles. But how else can our listeners get more Rich Kirk? Well, if you're a client and you're dissatisfied with your media planning and buying, then please get in touch with me and we'll, we'll do something about that. Uh, that's how you can get more of me because uh, the clients that I work on do tend to sort of see a lot of me uh outside of social media uh i don't know i'm yeah spend a lot of time in the broadcaster at white city that you probably find in the broadcaster at white city <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll try and link to that as well so we've got uh there must be some kind of address we can dig out 
Well, thank, thank you so much for joining us, Rich. I've really enjoyed it. No worries. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Uh, it was, yeah, it's been lovely chatting to Giles. Thank you. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, please do share and review the pod. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. And I try, and I try, and I try.